Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. William Strunk Jr., author of The Elements of Style, simply said, good writing means good revising. But what exactly is good revising and what is bad revising? Today, we have author Anne Hood with us to help us understand the nuances of revision. Anne is the author of 14 novels, four memoirs, a short story collection, and she's a regular contributor to the New York Times. Her most recent work is Fly Girl, a memoir, published in 2022. With all that writing, you can imagine the amount of revising she has done over the years. Today, Anne is here to help us reframe revising as seeing your writing anew, talk about her approach to revisions, and also why she believes all rough drafts are glorious messes. Welcome, Anne, to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. First, I want you to tell us about your work as an author, about your most recent memoir, Fly Girl. What was different about writing this book than others that you have written? Can you start there? I was a, a flight attendant for TWA from 1978 to 1986. So I kind of straddled what was still known as the golden age of travel when people dressed up to travel and planes and the service they provided were glamorous and being a flight attendant still had a great, de- a great deal of glamour and mystique attached to it. And I ended in 1986 after a big oil crisis and union busting and airlines going out of business. And I would say the beginning of what we now know as flying had just started. So I kind of straddled this very interesting time historically. And people love stories about my days as a flight attendant, but I never thought about that historic perspective before. So when people would say, you have to write a book about being a flight attendant, I thought it would be so anecdotal. You know, there's no story there. But right before the pandemic, which was a sort of a lucky turn of events, it came together for me that there was a historic significance to my story and that being a flight attendant, I started when I was 21 years old. That really was my coming of age story. I grew up, I say, at 35,000 feet. It empowered me. It taught me to be independent. It taught me to be confident. And it gave me a lot of writing time. I wrote my first novel when I was a flight attendant. And so once I had that kind of realization, all these decades later, I decided that I did have a story to tell about it. And just as I was finishing up my research, the pandemic arrived. And I cannot tell you what a lifesaver it was to write this book about the years when I flew all the time, anywhere I wanted, on any whim I had during a time when I couldn't even like go to the grocery store. It provided such a great escape for me (laughs) to write it during that time. That's amazing. So I love that you grappled with, are these just anecdotes or is this a memoir? And so many of our writers are grappling with that same question. Do you have any advice for writers who are trying to figure out if it's really a memoir or if it's just 
like one or two stories? I do. I think it's one of the most important things that we think of if we're writing essays and or memoir, because I feel like we are mostly ordinary people who went through maybe something extraordinary. And we're trying to find the extraordinary things in our ordinary life. And although we may have survived something difficult or achieved something that was hard to achieve or struggled with different things in our life, it doesn't mean we have a whole book's worth of memoir. And I think one of the most common things I say when I teach memoir is that many of you are going to leave this week or this semester, depending on where I'm teaching, realizing that you have three really strong essays, but not a memoir. I like what the writer Andre Debuse III says about writing memoir. The reader doesn't need to know about every ham sandwich you ate. (laughs) I know that sounds funny, but it's just when you're reading a manuscript or as writers writing a manuscript, And you realize you're filling in things that don't really move the story or pertain to the main story. You probably don't have enough material for a memoir. So where do people go then with those those essays? If they say, I have like one or two really great memoir-like essays, what would you recommend to people? Well, you know, the essay market, I think, is wonderful because there are some mainstream places, but there are so many literary journals. And I feel like essays are really kind of shining right now. I know people always say things are trending or not trending. I try not to think about that, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I've been reading a lot of very good essays. My tip is always to get a copy of the most recent Best American Essays. They come out every autumn. In fact, I'm sure the new one is coming out any minute now. And in the back, they list all of the places they look to find the Best American Essays that year. So you get the the name of the magazine or journal and the address. So you've got a whole resource right at the back of that book. I just think your comment is so relevant about three essays versus a memoir. What would you say to someone who, there's some people who maybe don't have enough for say a memoir or or a novel. What would you say to someone really haven't thought through the storyline and the narrative arc? Oh, Do you have a day to talk about this? (laughs) It's such a a big question. It's, It's like so important. The poet Bill Matthews said, revising isn't cleaning up after the party. It is the party. And I think until a reader can accept that, they're going to have those 500,000 word pieces of writing that sort of don't have any shape yet or no ending yet. Writers, especially new writers or beginning writers, resist revision. And I think it's that fantasy that we all had when we dreamed of being writers, that we would sit down maybe with a tweed jacket on, you know, and look out (laughs) at the rooftops of Paris and whatever we wrote would just come out and it would be beautiful and publishable. And that, that was never the case. Even the writers that we emulate revise, revise, revise. So I think that's where the magic begins. But I think it take, it can be a long journey for writers to, to accept that or to realize that. So let's get into, we've already kind of started going there. So let's just go there more deeply with the revision process. How do you describe the revision process to especially new writers or maybe seasoned writers? Do you have Do you have a way that you like to describe it? And are there any misconceptions about the revision process? I know that 
you, that wonderful quote that you just said, revising isn't the cleanup after. And I guess that that is probably one of the misconceptions, but are there any others? I find that a lot of new writers mistake the revision process with the copy editing process. Right. So they will fix the grammar and maybe the awkward sentences and tweak things here and there. Revision, Joseph Conrad said, to think of the word literally, revision, to see it anew, to see it again. And that's terrifying. As a writer who's had to do it many, many times, it's terrifying because you want to be finished. You want this piece of work to land in the right hands or to be in a book or a magazine or a journal. You don't want to keep working on it, but that's the only way to get it. It wasn't at Hemingway that he was asked in the Paris Review interview, is it true, Mr. Hemingway, that you rewrote the last line of The Sun Also Rises 49 times? And he said, it is true. And the interviewer said, well, why did you do that? And his answer was to get the words right. And I think that's what revision is, getting it right. Getting that story to the place where my father was in the Navy. And when he would make our beds, you could bounce a dime off them. They were so tight. Those sheets were pulled in so tight. And I think of that with revision to get those pages so tight that a dime can bounce off them without anybody saying, nope, there's a mistake. Oh, it fell there. You know, I'm stuck there. It fell off the page to have everything in place. Because, you know, the the hard truth is that you get it to that point and then you're going to have an editor who's going to find more things for you to revise. So, which is always to me can be so disheartening but it, it's the way the, the writing business goes, the writing world goes. There's a lot of talk about this, the, the first draft, you know, Anne Lamont's SFD. Could you talk a little bit about that? And when does that first draft really end? And when you actually start the revision process, or is it a myth? You're actually revising as you go. How do you maybe revision with a big R and revision uh-huh. with a small? So that, that's really, there are a couple, a couple really important points to what you just asked. I really am not a fan of that SFD. I, it actually kind of makes me angry as a writer because I am really busy and I have been busy since I've been writing. I raised kids. I taught. I tried to make a living as a writer. I, I tried to invest in friendships and marriage and When I could sit down to write, nothing I produced was that S word. It wasn't something publishable, but I don't think that makes it that. So I really have, I really react strongly to that. I call first drafts glorious messes. They are messy. They should be messy. You shouldn't be editing yourself when you're just trying to get the story down the first time. But they're glorious because you are writing sentences. You are telling a story. And there's nothing crummy about that. But then, of course, you have to fix that story. So to your question, I think one of the things a a new writer has to do, and it's hard to do because you're trying to figure out the process, like what, how do I make this happen? When do I write this? When do I revise? How do I take these steps? In, In which order? When really a big part of writing is figuring out your own process. But the only way to do that is through trial and error. Like the worst advice I ever got from a very well-meaning teacher was to write every day. 
If you don't write two hours a day, he said, you're not a writer. Well, I was working at that time as a flight attendant. I didn't have two consecutive hours when I could write. I was grabbing an hour here, jet lag in Vienna, trying to stay awake just so I could eat dinner because I was so tired all the time. I was writing in these fits and starts, but I was writing. Once I put that two hour a day thing on myself, I couldn't write. And everything Mm -hmm. I did write was terrible, but I tried it and I realized, okay, that guy's way wasn't good for me. And I think new writers have to try all these things and find their own process. For me, I revise as I go. And that's something I urge, I urge writers to try. Try that and see if that works for you. And I can give a couple examples because a lot of writers I know do that, but we do it in different ways. What I do is when I sit down to work each day, I read aloud what I wrote the day before. That could be a page or it could be 10 pages. It just depends on how productive I was the day before. I read it aloud and I edit it. You know, I'm on the computer and I edit it as I read. Sometimes that editing is very little. I, I wrote pretty well or, you know, I like what I produced the day before. Sometimes I think it's embarrassing. I missed the mark. It's, the scene is wrong. The dialogue's bad. And I end up deleting all of what I did the day before. That's my process. Read aloud, edit as you do, and then move on. I have another writer friend who his magic number is 100. He doesn't revise until he hits page 100. And then he stops writing and he, he reads from the start, not aloud, but reads from the start and starts the editing there. And I have yet another writer friend who does it by chapters. He doesn't revise till he finishes a chapter. And so these are all ways to edit while you go. And you just have to figure out which one works for you. So when you're revising and editing as you go, even what things are you looking for as far as like character development or, or, or plot? What, what things are you looking for? Not just, I know there's like a ring to truth or this doesn't seem right or feel right, but what else are you specifically looking for as you, as you begin to revise and edit yourself? So in the process I described that I do every day, it has to be a pretty bad misstep for character or plot for me to catch it because I'm just reading what I wrote the day before. And sometimes I do. But that kind of bigger sort of like macro revision, I do at different increments in a, in a book-length manuscript. So around page 75, I read and and revise with that kind of stuff in mind. And then again, around page 150. And so what are you looking for then at that stage, as far as character arc themes, what, 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 what can writers be on the lookout for? This is hard because you really have to develop a cold eye on your own work. You have to really say, I I pretend when I'm revising in that way, that I'm not reading what I wrote, but I'm reading what a friend gave me or a student gave me to help with, right? Because you know your story and your characters, and it's easy not to catch those things. So whatever it takes to get some objectivity before you dive in, I think you should try. The most important thing being give yourself some distance between the material and you. And so when I hit page 75, I don't finish that page, print it out, which is another thing I can talk about. I, I do my revising on the on hard copy but I don't hit page 75, print it out and immediately start revising. I hit page 75 and I don't look at it again for a week because 
I'm so happy I hit page 75. And I think I've just written the most brilliant 75 or 150 or 300 pages ever. But a week later, those kinds of things like character problems and plot problems become very clear. But if you're in the magic and the dream state of writing, it's too easy to miss them or be seduced by your own brilliance. That is a really, really great tip. You talked about editing, revising on a hard copy. Can you mm. tell me about that, that reasoning and why you choose to do that? I started writing way before there were computers, or at least the ones we used at home. So, and I never learned to type because a very well-meaning teacher told me that if I learned to type, I would only get jobs as a secretary. And so <laughs> it was not good advice <laughs> because I'm a writer and typing would be helpful. But as a result, I wrote my first three novels in longhand because I'm such a bad typist. And back in the day when you had to have liquid paper and carbon paper, it was really difficult when you made errors. It, was, it just added such frustration to the writing process. So I did everything in longhand. And I guess even though I got a computer after three novels, people were getting them then. I still remember I had a leading edge, this enormous, hard to figure out how to work pile of computer. But I realized that I missed, and I know this sounds maybe antiquated or something, but I really missed just writing on paper. But I embraced the, everything that that computer gave me. Like I could fix an error right away. I could cut things. I could cut and paste things. So I wasn't like resisting technology, but I was, I was missing the pen to paper bit. And so I began long ago this process of printing out a draft and taking it somewhere where I don't usually work. So for example, if, I'm, if I've written, been writing at my desk, I'm going to take that hard copy to a cafe or to my sofa or to a chair I don't usually sit in just so I kind of shake myself up a bit and I'm not so comfortable. And then I just, I read it like I'm reading somebody else's writing. And I cross things out. I mean, I am ruthless. And I really think that's important. Truman Capote said he revised with a, a sword, not a pencil. That's kind of what I think you need to do metaphorically. You were talking earlier about how so many writers, especially new writers, <laughs> mistaken revision as proofreading or copy editing. So if you were to say these are the top three things that you should be looking for in the revision process, what would those three things be? It's not the misplaced comma. <laughs> it's not, but that is part of it. I have to say, I yeah. always think of it as micro revision and macro. And you can't ignore either one. And the micro is all that stuff. Your grammar. I, I can't tell you how many times I get frustrated reading a manuscript that was sent to me. And things are like, like I was in the grocery aisle, I-S-L-E. Oh, boy. Crazy. <laughs> getting your it's right. The possessive versus the other. I, I just... Those things really are important. And I know agents will stop reading if there's too many of those. So I, I can't dismiss that micro stuff. But for the bigger stuff, what do you want to do? Or you want to be able to, uh, this helps me. I make like a chart. And I like visuals. So I get a piece of poster board and I write down the things I think I did. This is the character's arc. And, and in very brief words, not big, I don't write paragraphs. I mean, I'm on a piece of poster board with a magic marker. And I, I put the chronology down. I make a timeline because one of my biggest mistakes is the chronology always makes sense in my head and almost never on the page. 
That is the most common question I get. It's like, but did she meet him before this happened? Or how did they get to France? You know, things like that. I'm very, in my mind, it always makes sense. So I do a timeline. I have my major character arcs. And then when I start reading, I keep glancing over at that poster board. So when, when that character does that outlandish thing, does it really fit her character? Or is it serving the writer who needs the plot to go a certain way? So I think I'm constantly just questioning the relationship of character to plot and the other way around. When you start, let's just say you have this idea for a novel or some narrative nonfiction or whatever it is you're writing, do you, do you map out on, a, on either a whiteboard or a poster board the initial narrative arc and some of the initial structure? What does your structure look like mapping it out at the very beginning of, of the writing process? What I do is I do bullet points because my weakness is plot. And I think it's really important for a writer to understand what they're good at and what they're not good at. And I know that character is my strength. It's been pointed out to me many times. And I know that plot can be my weakness. So when I'm beginning, I pretty much have a character and a situation in mind. And we know a situation isn't a story, right? So I've got to think about the plot. And what I typically do is write bullet points that I want to happen. Like in my novel, The Knitting Circle, it was she has lost her daughter. That's a plot point. She's going to learn to knit. That's a plot point. She's going to befriend one of the other women. That's a plot point. She's going to catch her husband cheating. The knitting store is going to burn down. Her mother, who she has a bad relationship with, is going to show up. And on and on and on. And, you know, I have like 20 or 30 of these. Some don't happen because as the writing goes, you realize that plot point was sort of a red herring or you changed it enough that that doesn't matter. What's always exciting to me is when I'm writing and I realize Wow, I had that plot point. I knew I wanted it to happen in the book, but I was ready to put it in in my imagination in chapter four, but it's really near the end of the book. You're able to see your story kind of taking shape, which is so exciting. I love how granular you are with that. And I love what else what else you said that really stuck out is that as a writer, you need to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And if you can identify what your weaknesses are, then you can be more proactive in that area of your writing. I love that piece of encouragement. I can't tell you how many writers have said to me that when they got their notes back from their editor on a manuscript, even though we all react the same way to criticism, you know, even though they feel sad or frustrated or mad or whatever, ultimately after the notes settle and they have to start revising, they kind of knew what those notes were going to be. I, I think we kind of know when we go wrong, but we're hoping no one notices. You raised such an important point, which is about feedback and the importance of feedback. And we've worked with numerous authors and oftentimes we review their manuscript and we even point out, this isn't clear to me. And they say, but it's clear to me. And we're like, but it's not clear to us, the reader. And so I'm just, I'm thinking about this whole feedback process and how that plays into to the revision process and how can you vet feedback, whether it's good feedback or bad feedback? Uh, yeah, that is, that is really an important thing to think about if you're a writer and you're going to get a lot of feedback. And so there's all, but you know, writers are getting that feedback from all different places. So I'm going to kind of talk about 
a few of them. If your mom loves it (laughs) or your boyfriend or, you know, your darling child, be grateful and happy, but I'm not sure that's the best, most honest feedback you're going to get. So I think that going to those people who are inclined to love everything you do is probably not the way to approach revision. Great for the ego. And they may point out things that are really wonderful that you'll be happy to hear, but maybe give them a finished manuscript to read and, and get all their accolades. Then we have the writing workshop, right? Whether you're in a an MFA program or just taking a writing workshop or attending one somewhere in the country, and you have a group of maybe 12 or 14 other writers who are beginning writers like you, and you're going to hear such contradictory stuff. And I always say that you kind of have to listen below the comments. Somebody is really hopping on this one scene where they don't believe that your character would be standing in that art gallery. That doesn't mean you rush home and change that scene. You have to ask, what about that scene is so bothering that reader? Did I not make the art gallery seem authentic? Is this a character who would never go to an art gallery? She'd be at a pool parlor. What about that scene is bothering? So I don't think we take everything so literally. We listen to the comments and we have to see what are they, what's really wrong in what they're talking about. Of course, sometimes people are wrong when they give us feedback, but I don't think you start there. And I think that's what kind of happens. We can get defensive. So if, it's, if they're saying something we don't really want to hear, or the clarity one is such a good example, because I think that's one of the biggest notes I write on manuscripts is I don't understand this, or it's unclear why they're here or what, what they're doing or who the narrator is, the details are missing. And, and when we talk about things to look for in revision, you've actually opened up kind of a, an important place because one of the things you have to make sure in revision that it's so hard, so hard to see that you're not doing it is, does the reader know your narrator or your protagonist's name and age? and where they are, and when it is, and what they want. Because we know it so well, we often forget to tell the reader those most basic things. So what about this idea of trying to find some readers to to get that feedback? Do you ever advise people to do that? Is that even possible? And is their feedback pretty much the same as, you know, you have to listen beneath the comments? So I think if you have taken any classes or writing workshops or gone to writers conferences, you may have studied with someone who would be willing to read a draft. I have done that from time to time with students whose work I especially responded to. So that's sort of the dream thing, right? Is that a professional, a professional writer or editor that you've met wants to read it. When you're in those groups though, you do meet people who are simpatico and they make really good readers. And whenever I teach, I say, look around this whole semester, this whole week, again, depending on where we are. And someone here is really going to understand what you're doing. And you're going to like the way they give you criticism as much as we can like it. And with email, it's so easy to stay in touch and share work with people. So I'm going to ask a slightly personal question, and that is, did you face any revision hurdles in your most recent memoir? And if so, what were they? Okay. I did such a huge mistake in this memoir. 
So it required, first of all, me getting back in touch with the 21-year-old girl I was who wanted to be a flight attendant and going through my interview process, my training, my first flights, and all my flights and how I felt and reacted to sexism, to difficult situations, to emergencies, to dealing with people, to being out in the world for the first time. And that all happened 40 years ago. So number one, I had all of that to to sort of to tap into. Then I wanted it to have historical significance and context. And so I did an awful lot of research. So ultimately, I had all of this material that I now had to shape into a story. And I chose and held on to for about six or eight drafts, organizing the book, not chronologically, but by topic. And so it was really confusing. So I had like, here's what layovers were like. Here's what training was like. Oh, and by the way, here's what it was like to be a flight attendant in the 30s. And all of this stuff kind of like big info dumps in a way, or it fell into being too anecdotal. And so I had a conversation with my editor and she kept giving me notes. And I was trying to like listen to her notes and look at the manuscript. And I was like, this book is not working. And I closed my computer and I went and sat on the couch and did what I always do. And I need to think and relax, which is knit. I'm a huge knitter. And I actually want to say something about that in regards to revision in a minute. But I started knitting and I swear within minutes, I was like, I'm not telling a story. I'm not saying here's who I was. Here's why I did it. I didn't take the reader's hand and take them with me on this journey. I chopped this journey up into too many legs. And I called her back right away and I said, I I can fix it. I know what I did. I told her and she was giddy with excitement. And then that draft is pretty much the draft that became the book. So did your editor not editor not flag that or was she just leaving it up to you to figure out or I'm curious about the conversations that you had with your editor and if she provided an alternative route for you to to structure your memoir. The I am in of the belief that a good editor doesn't tell you how to fix it. They just point out what needs to be fixed, because if they're prescriptive, you're not writing your book. But they tell you and, and she certainly did and continues to with my Latin, the novel I'm just finishing, tell me what's not working. And then I can talk to her about how about if I fix it like this? And she can say that doesn't sound right, you know, or she might give me an idea, but tends not to. And so what she knew was that this book was this wasn't a compelling enough story yet. And that's because it wasn't a story at all. I love that something so basic as it wasn't a story. And, you know, memoir is a story. I think sometimes we overlook the most basic revision that needs to be done. We complicate things. I I love that that you shared that story with us. Okay, back to knitting and revising. I've got to hear this. What is that all about? (laughs) So I think that a writer needs to have something that is a respite for their brain, but also allows them, their brain to think independently of the project. For some people, that's gardening. For some people, that's, my husband goes bike riding every day. He's a writer that <laughs> pertains. For some people, it's swimming. For some people, it's cooking. For me, it's knitting. I need at the end of a work day, I usually typically around four o'clock, I sit down, I turn off, I don't look at my phone, I don't look at my computer, I pick up my knitting and I get into that project, whatever I'm working on. 
And number one, I relax. But secondly, my brain is sort of processing what I've been working on that day or a problem I have with work or a writing problem if I've hit an obstacle. And almost always after I knit, I have figured something out. I do laundry or clean the bathrooms. That's how I cope. And it's amazing. People laugh, but it's like that that Mm -hmm. act of recovery, right? You're recovering and in that space, your mind does process everything that's not working out. I love that knitting is is much more, I don't know, artistic and glamorous, I suppose. <laughs> oh no, you have to clean bathrooms that I do those. <laughs> but you know, it's 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 physiological true that repetitive actions do free us to to think and free our imagination. Do you have any sort of encouragement for authors who are terrified of the revision process? And you just want to express to them how important it is. Is there any encouragement that you can give to them? I tell this story in Fly Girl, but in that in the memoir, I don't relate it to revision, but in my life I do. When I was a flight attendant, the pilot asked me if I wanted to sit in the cockpit for landing. It was a 747. We were coming from Europe at into JFK. And it was December. It was right before Christmas. And it was very exciting, you know, and I went and sat there. And it's very like nerve wracking in there. Things are beeping and ringing and everybody sounds really intense as they should be. They're landing a 747. But it started to snow. And when we were still up pretty high, the snow looked like fairy dust, just sparkled against the the lights of the airplane. And then as we were closer to landing, it looked like big snowflakes coming at the plane in the most beautiful way. And the the skyline of Manhattan appeared before us. And it's just like so majestic with that snow coming down and the lights. And then we landed and I actually got teary. Like I wasn't sobbing, but I was teary eyed. And the pilot said, I know it's, it's one of the most incredible things you can witness. And he said, why do you think I do this job? I don't even fly this plane anymore. A computer does. I do it for the excitement of the eight minutes of takeoff and the 11 minutes of landing. And to me, that's what revision is. It's that taking off, you know, getting your book ready, writing it, having a whole manuscript, and then you have to get that plane to land. (laughs) And that can take a very long time. And that's not the fun, necessarily the fun part or the glamorous part or the thing that you thought writers did before you became one yourself. But when you revise and you get it right, that landing is just as glorious as the landing of that 747 that night. So in that glorious mess, right? The first glorious mess. How do you know when you're done with that first glorious mess? You reach the end. (laughs) You tell the story because what you have to know is that both of those words are accurate. It feels glorious and parts of it truly are, but it is a mess. And so you just want to get that first draft done. And it may be that as you were talking about someone who probably already written the ending, but didn't realize it, you may have written past the ending. You may think you're at the end, but you're not. You may have started in the wrong place, but you don't know that until you have something that goes, that has an arc and moves from beginning to end. And so that's when you're finished that first glorious mess. Then you get to work. 
That is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being with us, Anne. It's been one of our my favorite interviews ever. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. All right. Let's turn to our words of the episode. Dave, how about you go first? Okay. So mine's a common word again, but two things. I think I knew what it meant, but I wasn't pronouncing it correctly. It's it's ersatz, and it it's a, it means a substitute like a product, an inferior, generally an inferior substitute for something else. So the ersatz product, ersatz coffee, or the ersatz handbag instead of a Louis Vuitton, you're getting some cheap version. It's so ersatz. That's a German word, right? I believe it is. I think I just read that somewhere this week because that's a word that I've used ever since Davis was a Lemony Snicket fan. He used all these vocabulary words in those books. And that was one the Airsots Elevator. So <laughs> I like to use that word a lot. And I just recently read about it. I think it's a German word. Mine is a word that I've seen written. I've never used it in my spoken word before. And I don't even know if I've ever used it in my written word before. And it's probably because I can't pronounce it. So I'm going to try to pronounce it right. And it's dolorous, dolorous, D-O-L-O-R-O-U-S, kind of like dolorous, which is how I want to pronounce it. But actually the emphasis is on the duh, dolorous. And it means experiencing or marked by or expressing sorrow, especially that associated with irreparable loss. And of course I like this because I'm a melancholy type person. So it's a great way to describe music or maybe even fall, I think, has a dolorous type of feel to it, right? Because it's loss. You're, the leaves are changing colors. Summer's behind us. I think Labor Day is one of the most dolorous days of the year because the pools are closing. Everybody's back into school. You can see winter on the horizon. So that is my word for the episode, dolorous. That is such a good fit for you. Isn't That's it? Awesome. I, I'm going to try yeah. using it now, now that I know how to pronounce it. <laughs> All right. Well, what a great episode. I think that that is it for today. We look forward to the next episode. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.